Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. Kirsten Tynan, thank you so much for being a guest on Freedom Forum Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk about, I mean, you've raised some very interesting things. I mean, obviously, we expect things to change over time. I mean, that's that's a natural occurrence. But when you look at what's happened to the jury system, uh, I think that jurors have to start getting a little more inventive about how um, how they deal with situations that where jury nullification really would be an important thing to invoke. So I was thinking about that the other day, and here the judge gives his rules. He said, Here's, here are the rules, and you got to follow the rules. Well, you're sitting on the jury, and you're thinking, something ain't right here. Um, I was thinking, what about some mechanism? What can jurors do to nullify or to be an independent juror in the face of that, something like a pocket veto that a president can do, or some way to to go ahead and nullify and be independent uh, and go against what the judge says. How do how do you do that? Well, we have a lot of training that we have developed in the last couple of years, and that is an ongoing project because there is a definite problem that um, if during jury selection, one of the ways they get rid of people is to figure out who's likely to nullify and then get rid of them. Well, that it doesn't do anyone any good for us to tell more people about jury nullification. <laughs> so the first thing I would say is anyone who is called for jury duty, I would say go to FIJA.org slash jury duty. And that is our guide for jury duty for fully informed prospective jurors. And that includes things like some sample questions that you might be asked during voir dire. It's not for you to memorize the questions and answers. But just as you go through the exercise, you'll get a feel for how you can answer things truthfully, but more neutrally than you might be inclined to do on your own. (laughs) Um, I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice, but it is my observation that you can get into serious legal trouble for lying during jury selection if you're caught. And um, you will find that is it's more common for people to get in trouble for that in high profile cases or high stakes cases where there is a whole team of people checking into the jurors. Um, so 
that is something I would be careful about. But you can answer questions much more neutrally than you might at first be inclined to do. So we go through a number of different types of questions, questions on um, jury, the purpose of the jury or how the jury operates kind of thing, questions that are aiming to find out if you're going to nullify because the case is about a particular issue or whatnot, and give you sort of questions that might be delve, digging into uh, things that, that are, are going to help the prosecutor decide to get rid of you that maybe you don't have to answer in a way that tips your hand. <laughs> Once you get into um, deliberations, as was mentioned earlier, you can't be punished for your verdict or for the way you vote, but you can be removed from the jury before a verdict is rendered if one of your fellow jurors squeals on you and says, hey, this person was in there talking about jury nullification, or this person was saying they weren't going to follow the judge's instructions. So you have to be a little bit more subtle in most cases. Um, so in that jury duty guide, we have some comments on you know how you can participate, but also stick to your conscientious vote. If you are considered to not be participating, if you if you just refuse to listen to anyone else, refuse to have any, you know, any sort of discussion, that can get you removed from the jury as well. So what I recommend is, you know, engage in discussion, ask questions. That's being involved in the discussion. You can um, give your thoughts on if you have any reason to think that there is reasonable doubt in this case, even if it sounds kind of silly to you. <laughs> mention it because you cannot legally be removed because you doubt that the person is guilty. So if you have any chance to mention you have doubts about the person being guilty, mention it. That will be helpful if it comes time for um, you to be answering questions because someone has squealed on you and says that you know, you're not participating or that you're going to vote not guilty for a wrong reason. They can't ask a whole lot necessarily, but they can ask some questions. So um, I do suggest that if you are considering nullifying, A, don't use that word. B, don't bring up the punishment if you feel like other people aren't already thinking along the same lines as you. Um, don't talk about ignoring what the judge says or whatever. Just keep your conversation general. You can say, in my heart, I I can't find this person guilty. Just general stuff like that. <laughs> Little platitudes and feel good sayings. Um, but, but you know, actively listen to other people, ask questions, be involved. Just don't, don't tip your hand. Now, you yourself cannot bring about a not guilty verdict if other people agree, disagree with you, but you can at least hang the jury. Uh, and that is... Again, back to the jury instructions, judges will often um, say or suggest that it's best for everyone if the jury delivers a verdict that day. That is not true for the defendant. That is an absolute lie. It is absolutely there to help the prosecution. And that is not surprising given that the vast majority of judges are former prosecutors. Um, but they'll basically suggest, let's say you, you, you cannot come to an agreement with the rest of the jury you report to the judge that you're deadlocked. What's going to happen next? Usually, 
they will not just accept that right off the bat. They will give what is known um, most commonly as an Allen charge, but it can be called other things in different states. Allen was the name of the case that it was based on. Uh, You might also hear it called the dynamite charge. But basically, the judge gives an additional instruction telling jurors, go back and try again. And although there's a like a token bit of language about how, you know, you should vote what you conscientiously believe, there's a lot of bullying language that suggests that you're wasting taxpayer money if you can't agree, that no other jury is going to be able to agree if you can't agree, that you should try harder, you know, all this stuff. And again, with the language saying that, you know, it's best, it's best for everyone if you could come to a decision. It's best for the government if you could come to a decision, not necessarily the defense. If you can't agree, or if you if you don't feel like that person deserves um, to be punished, stick to your vote. I have had a number of people take a quiz on our website about jury rights and far Most often, the question that people get wrong is so many people, more than a third of people who respond, are under the impression that the jury has to deliver a guilty or not guilty verdict on each charge. Not true at all. If you can't come to a verdict, that is okay. You can report that you're deadlocked. The judge can say, go back and try again. I am not aware of any legal limit on the number of times the judge can do that, but it will eventually come to an end if you stick to your your vote. Um, And what happens in that case, the defendant does not get off the hook, but they do have some advantages in a number of ways. Number one, they are not immediately going to be punished. So it's a much better position to defend yourself when you're not already considered guilty, because once you have been found guilty, uh, if you appeal, you no longer have the presumption of innocence on your side. You're now presumed guilty. So a lot of people um, who have told me, oh, well, no one, I couldn't get everyone else to agree with me. So I changed my mind. He can appeal anyway. It's like, No, that's not very helpful because now he's appealing from a position of I'm considered guilty to start, not I'm considered not guilty to start. Um, Second, they they may get another trial, in which case they have at least seen the prosecution's playbook. A lot of times the defense is not as prepared as it should be because when the prosecution, the prosecution is required to turn over what's called discovery. That is information that could suggest that the defendant is not guilty, but they will selectively decide what to turn over themselves, or they will deluge the defense with a huge amount of information, much of which has nothing to do with anything so that the the evidence that they need to prove their innocence or to, to support their innocence is buried in a pile of other stuff. And they will often do it maybe a couple of days, maybe a week or so before the trial begins. So the prosecution can sit on it for months and months and months and then turn it over at the last minute. Well, if they get another trial, now they have some time to go through this discovery. They can figure out if anything's missing that should have been turned over. Uh, they can see how the the prosecute they've seen in this trial, how the prosecution was going to use it, et cetera. So they have a better uh, place to be um, arguing from in a future trial. And best of all, they may not even need another trial. It may be that the prosecution decides it's not worth it to go through the whole thing again. And 
offer a far better plea bargain they were than they were offered to begin with, if they were even offered one at all. Or as we've seen in medical cannabis cases in San Diego, for instance, the prosecution may just be like, this is just too humiliating. I'm not the prosecutor in the situation I'm thinking of um, was running for reelection <laughs> and it was not going to look good if there were you know, more trials that were hung, hung juries kind of thing. And there was even one case uh, in that situation in which the jury deadlocked eight to four. The judge will typically ask, you know, what not necessarily eight, eight guilty or not guilty and four guilty or not guilty, but like, what's the split to see, oh, if it's just one holdout, maybe pressure is going to help them get over the hump. But if it's like a six to six split, maybe we just all go home. It's not even worth it. Well, in this particular case, um, I believe it was two people who had serious um, terminal illnesses who were using cannabis. And um, the jury deadlocked eight to four. And the judge said, you know, in the interest of justice, I'm just not going to permit this to be retried. So (laughs) a hung jury works out much better for the accused than being convicted. Um, And so I would definitely say stick to your vote if that's if that's what you think is Kirsten Tynan, thank you so much for being a guest on Freedom Forum Radio. You know, you've brought up a point which is really good, and the jury nullification can be used against government laws that are considered by large sections of the population to be unjust. Uh, I read that at one point in England, that if you stole a loaf of bread, that the uh, the punishment was death. Well, obviously, the convictions for bread stealing went way, way down because most people couldn't go along with that kind of uh, punishment. Uh, and the same thing uh, you mentioned, I mean, with, with vices, uh, vices are not crime is, is another. And that's really what we're talking about here uh, with cannabis and, and the use of cannabis, which is so widespread, uh, eventually these cases become an onerous burden to everyone because they're taking uh, court time and prosecutor time. And and really uh, it's against what most people are believing. And I think that uh, you actually um, give a speech on how the jurors 86, the 18th Amendment, which was kind of <laughs> interesting too, wasn't it? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely want to talk about that. But if I, if I may, I would like to talk a little bit about the era in England you were um, just referring to. Sure, because go that ahead. was just such a, a joyful time for, for juries, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, The time in history uh, is known as the bloody code era because it came, the the punishments for even minuscule crimes started escalating to harsher and harsher things. And at a certain point, there were hundreds of things down to the level of pickpocketing that were punishable by death. And hence the the term bloody code era. (laughs) 
And you can actually look online and find the um, old Bailey's records from that era. And you will find, I'm going to use American currency because I think it'll make more sense to people. And also I'm not that familiar with British currency, so I don't want to say something wrong. But imagine that the person was accused of stealing $20 and were found with a $20 bill on them. And the jury came back with a verdict that said, uh, this person is guilty of stealing that for, for that, that $20 bill, we, we find that they're guilty of stealing $19 and 99 cents. They did that because they didn't want the person to be executed for stealing that much. Yes, you shouldn't be stealing, but not everything should be an executable offense either. (laughs) So uh, that is something that uh, you'll often hear referred to in, um, uh, in England as pious perjury, because they were basically saying, all right, we know it's 20 bucks, but for the purposes of the sentence, we're going to say it's $19.99. You're not getting off scot-free, but we're not going to kill you for that. So I, I really enjoyed seeing those things. It's like, wow. And, and hey, they're the jury. They got the final say. Those were accepted. And I bet judges actually felt quite relieved about it. And that also speaks to sort of the political power of the jury, because that sort of thing is largely what helped that era come to an end, because it was like, what is even the point of this? And so to transition into uh, the alcohol prohibition, it's kind of the same thing in, in the United States. There are certain things in our history that were on the books, but just became unenforceable or became humiliating for the government to try to enforce. And I've done a lot of uh, research into prohibition era cases, and there are just hilarious news articles out there where jurors will, for instance, uh, there was a case of George Bevan, who was accused of having a container of liquor And so the whole trial was held and then the jurors were taken to the deliberation room and the evidence was in a, in a glass jar and was sent with them. And they were very conscientious. I like these jurors. They were really going to do their job. They, they looked at it and said, well, I'm not sure it's clear liquid, but how do I know that's liquor? We're going to have to check into this. So one by one, each of them investigated a little bit and it went, the jar went around the room. And around the room as each juror dutifully investigated. And at some point they realized there was no evidence left. So they had to acquit Mr. Bevan. Well, the news article about it (laughs) was quite interesting. It wasn't uh, exactly about the case. It was about the um, jurors getting called on the carpet the next day and getting quite the scolding by the judge. There was one juror who wasn't able to make it into court because she was so sick. I'm sure that had nothing to do with her dutiful uh, work as a juror, though, right? (laughs) But there are hilarious stories like that throughout um, the Prohibition era um, news archives, um, and, and they're just great. I love collecting those. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property. 
that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Gift Everything, everything, everything. 